Internet, and welcome to this episode of the Geeks Grading Geekdom Show podcast thing. I am Wes Shahola, and every week I talk about some kind of thing in the wide world of geekdom and give it a grade. That means movies, TVs, books, comics, or whatever else gets my attention. And this week, it's a throwback. We're going back to the early part of this century and the first big book series by Brandon Sanderson. It's all about some epic fantasy in the form of the Mistborn trilogy. Now, to be clear, i got to set this uh, up from the beginning. We're talking about the first Mistborn trilogy. I, frankly, didn't even realize Mr. Sanderson had written more sets of books set in this same world as the first three, and that he and I have independently thought of a similar idea when it comes to eras and settings, but that's a whole nother thing. So, the Mistborn trilogy, published by Tor Books between 2006 and 2008. It consists of Mistborn, also titled The Final Empire, but my copy is just titled Mistborn. The Well of Ascension is book two, and The Hero of Ages wraps up the trilogy. And like most epic fantasy, this is set in a world that is not ours. That's just a hallmark, a trope, a staple of epic fantasy. Fantasy writers have a thing for world building, and yes, my hand is raised. Granted, you could say all writers of fiction have a thing for world building since all of them do it to an extent, but it seems like a condition that is particularly extreme for people who write worlds of magic to the point where, like I just said, it is a hallmark of what epic fantasy is. The world is called Scadrial, and there's a solid prehistory involving some primal forces that lays the groundwork for the setting at the time of the events in this trilogy. I will get to that in a bit. The story and characters are, of course, the main thing. To put it well, bluntly, Scadrial is a world hanging on through an apocalypse, as in the world-changing disaster has happened, and it happened so long ago that this world with brown-leaved plants, uh, with red skies and a red sun, ash storms happening all the time, the ash is falling out of the sky almost constantly. And there's also a killer mist that just floats all over the place at night. But it's all taken by the residents of the world. It's just, yeah, that's that's just the way it is. And it's been that way for, well, as long as we can remember. And so we're just used to it. That's how it is. We've learned how to live with it. It has been that way in the setting for a thousand years or so. And I mean that literally. So everyone just just is used to it. This is the final empire, and this is under the hand of the immortal Lord Ruler. It, like a lot of oppressive empires, has basically two classes. There is the elite ruling class that are consistently engaging in schemes for their own prestige or schemes for the ruin of other noble houses. And then there's the Ska, who are the most everybody else, the oppressed class. They're, the Ska themselves are split into the ones who have the more gentle jobs serving the nobility and the ones that are working the fields and the mines and doing the hard work. So the mines, by the way, are very important to the Mistborn trilogy setting because the magic system that Brandon Sanderson developed for this world is, well, first of all, it's really complex while seeming really simple. And it's based around special metals and ingesting them for the most part. He calls it allomancy. And I've got to say, I 
slightly hate him for being so creative with not with the both the name and the magic system. It's it's unique. It's kind of like alchemy and mutants getting together and having a child. Allomancy works by allowing the users to gain magical abilities by swallowing and burning specific metals. The potential for someone to be able to do this. It's a genetic trait that's concentrated in in the nobility, but ska allomancers also exist. Usually they're they're half-breed, if you want to use breed that way, because they're all the same species, just different social classes. Normal allomancers, it turns out, have access to one of the list of potential allomantic powers. But there's an incredibly rare subset of allomancers that are called mistborn, and they have access to every allomantic power. See, I told you it was complex, but to keep it simple, there are mistlings. These are the mutant wizard types that can access one particular power, and there are the mistborn who can access all of them. That's important because there's a lot more mistlings than there are mistborns. Okay, so since no oppressive empire can survive without a central means of enforcement and control, the final empire has the Steel Ministry. This is something like a church and a secret police force all at the same time. There are four divisions. There's two of them that see to the ordinary day-to-day imperial business. Someone has to oversee businesses. Someone has to collect taxes. Someone has to keep other kinds of records. And that's the kind of things that those two divisions do. There's a third one that oversees the religious aspects of this Church of Steel or Ministry of Steel Ministry. And then there's, of course, the Inquisition. Those are the ones whose members have these long steel bikes driven through their eyes, but are none the worse off for it. And they're better, in fact, and they are terrifying. So there's your secret police, an arm of the church that is so powerful, they drive spikes through their heads, just apparently for appearance. But there's a little more to it than that. So there we go. We've got a post-apocalyptic fantasy world with an oppressive empire. So what's the story of the Mistborn trilogy? Tear it down. Tear it all down. The first of the two main characters that we meet is a man named Kaiser or Kessier. He's a half-ska. He'd been a thief. He got caught, and he got condemned to work the pits of Hathsin. This is basically a prison camp mining operation where if you don't find and mine your daily quota of the special metal chunks that are used for allomancy, that means you don't eat and you have to take whatever other punishments the guards decide to give you. While he was surviving his way through this, Kelsier sees his wife killed. That triggers grief in him, and that grief triggered his latent Mistborn powers. So he is one of the Mistborn with uh, able to access all of the special magical elemency powers. He puts this to good use since he is working in the mine where they get the stones and the metal to make elemency work. So he escapes. He spends three years leading up to the book uh, putting together a ragtag team of revolutionaries. He is determined to bring the empire down. Understandable. And in addition to the crew that he puts together, Kelsier's got an ally. The noble who is in charge of Noble House Renault is working with him, which 
seems odd since this noble directly benefits from the status quo, but he does provide critical help. So we're kind of questioning his motives from the moment we meet him, but things all become clear. Then, speaking of ragtag, we meet the second main character, the orphan street urchin girl named Vin. Despite being born a Ska, she's a Mistborn, because actually she's not a full-blood Ska. She's a half-breed. Uh, again, if you want to call it breed, they're the same species, just different social classes. But she is a Mistborn. She's able to use all of the powers. She's able to, I said. At the start of the book, though, she's barely scratched the surface of her potential. Vin lives with her brother, who is a thief, and lives with the crew of thieves that he's a part of. She's not officially a member of the crew, but she is useful to them to a point. For her part, she just tries to not catch anyone's notice out of a healthy amount of precaution for her safety. Kelsier, as I said, he was a thief. His brother runs in the same circles, and that let him learn about Vin and what she can do. And since Kelsier is setting up a revolution, he sees a higher purpose for Vin's life than just hiding in the shadows while trying to survive among thieves. So in short, yeah, he drafts her. I can't recall if Vin's exact age is ever established, but she's a teenager, so I'm going to go with 16, 17 years old. Kelsier brings her in for two reasons. First, of course, he wants to develop her allomancy powers to make her into a quality weapon for this revolution. Second, he wants her to spy on the nobility, and that's what she spends a whole lot of the book doing. To do this, she is set up in Lord Renault's household with the cover story that she's his distant niece or something like that. Uh, she is given all the accoutrements to make her story, cover story convincing. This includes clothing and opinions, etiquette lessons, and, of course, a personal servant. That would be Sazed, who's got his own story and may actually be the most interesting person in this trilogy. Turns out, when the Lord Ruler took over a thousand years ago, one of the things he did was forbid any religions except that of the Ministry of Steel. Sazed is from a line of people who took up the duty of memorizing all they could about every religion that existed at that time, a millennia ago, and then passing that knowledge down to their children, and so on and so on, generation after generation. They're kind of like the drifters from Fahrenheit 451, except with religion instead of literature, which makes sense. He's also what's known as a fairchemist, if I'm saying that right. It's kind of like a combination of ferrous, as in ferrous metals, and alchemist, as in alchemy. <laughs> so, F-E-R-U chemist. This is sort of an offshoot of allomancy, and like that, it's also a genetic thing. It's not something that can be learned. But where allomancers consume the metals that they turn into magic powers, they do literally eat them, the the ferrochemists wear or carry items made from the metal to access the powers within them that they can do because they are the mutant uh, ferromist. So, what's Kelsier's plan with his crew, his allies, his new spy-slash-weapon? Well, start a civil war between the noble houses, invade with an army of Ska, and steal the treasury. Yeah, steal the treasury. That 
actually would go, I guess, a long way to destabilizing the government, no matter how oppressive, because, well, remember, this is a world where the gold standard is still a thing. There's no phony faith-based currencies like crypto or dollars or stock market. So taking the Treasury would do a lot. Hopefully, they either plan to distribute it or use it to build back up after the war uh, and not just take it because they're led by thieves? That was always a weird question mark in my head reading this, but carrying on. So through the course of the book, Vin learns how to act like a noble, and she starts going to balls, which is like the number one pastime of the upper class, which it makes sense. Allomancy can't do things like make illusionary enhanced plays or create TV. No one seems to be willing to bother with making good board games. Sports aren't a thing because the sky is raining ash most of the time and nightlife has to be indoors for the same reason and, well, because of the killer mist that exists, thus, well, balls. So during her time at the balls, Vin keeps running into a guy named Ellen Venture, who attends these things but just isn't into them. He's a noble, and he goes out of family obligation because he's the heir to the most powerful of the noble houses, save for the Lord Ruler himself. But mostly he finds someplace quiet to go read. He is prideful, he is off-putting, he is irritated at the silly fluff of balls. So Vin starts to fall for him, and, well, he for her also, once she starts letting him pass that fake veneer of her faux nobility. For his part, Ellen and his like-minded noble friends, all young, have their own plans for the Empire once they rise to power. That is to say, once their parents die and they take control, he's got a plan that, uh, well, it's not evident right away. But it works out to be something that can happen in conjunction with this revolution. It's really hard to go on without getting into some pertinent plot points that might be spoilery, so listen with due care. But also, bear in mind, this is high fantasy I'm talking about here. This subtype of the overall fantasy genre is characterized by well-fleshed-out and thoughtful settings. World-building, I talked about that. Also, magic, because fantasy. Uh, and high-minded themes, often, that orbit around the idea of good versus evil. It's extremely rare for a high fantasy to story to end with evil triumphant, excepting when there's more story to come, wherein good makes a comeback. And while this can make for a great read, we're all pretty sure it's going to end well overall. The questions, the worry, the tension comes from how it's going to come out for the good and who's going to be paying how high of a price to get the win for team good. It's in fact this very thing that has often put me off even starting many fantasy books and series and made me wonder why I bothered finishing others, even by some of the best writers in the genre. One example, Black Trillium by Marion Zimmer Bradley, a giant in the fantasy realm. She wrote the freaking Mist of Avalon, for crying out loud, a landmark fantasy epic. She wrote this novel, Black Trillium, with Julian May and Andre Norton. It was published in 1990, and I read it, and here's the plot. A country is invaded. The triplicate princesses of the kingdom are ordered by a wizard to flee and seek out the three talismans that will, when brought together, be the only thing that will give their nation a chance at repelling the invaders. As it turns out, the sisters track down the amulets, 
they return home. They save the kingdom and they live through it. And, you know, aside from the stock characters who are essentially defined by their hair color, the tension in this book is non-existent. At no time did I worry or even wonder if they would succeed, much less get seriously hurt. It was a well-written, poor story. And I say all of that to remind you that the Mistborn trilogy sits comfortably, very comfortably, in the high fantasy subgenre, which is to say the good guys are going to win. Their plans do not collapse around them. They are not led into a fatal trap that kills them all, along with the dream of a post-apocalyptic world without the oppressive government of the high ruler. So really, that's just all a given, isn't it? So is there tension and surprises in this book, this first book of the Mistborn trilogy, that checks a lot of the boxes of high fantasy? Absolutely, yes. So I won't tell you how the ending comes or who pays the big high prices for it, but prices are paid. Team good is not infallible. Team evil is not incompetent and lazy, resting on the successes of a thousand-year reign. What I will go on and tell you is something obvious, I guess, for anyone that understands fantasy trilogies and don't bring up Lord of the Rings as a counterexample. That was written by Professor Tolkien to be one book. It was just so damn huge, the powers involved made the decision to cut it into three parts, which were all complete before publishing even began and were all released within a span of 14 months. So, anyway, at the end of book one, the big bad is defeated only to reveal that there's a bigger bad lurking out there. The bigger bad is what dominates the next two books. The middle one, The Well of Ascension, delves into how the Lord Ruler came to power in the first place, what he feared, and ancient texts and prophecies about it. And have I mentioned that I'm not a big fan of prophecies? I'm, I'm not. They don't always undermine any real tension in a novel, but that's about the best I can say for them. Anyway, so... While all that delving is happening, the survivors of the first book are trying to rebuild society and are having a hard time of it. Uh, turns out that when empires fall, the barbarians beyond the border start taking advantage of it. That's not exactly the situation here, but the principle's about the same. By the end of the middle book, after much back and forth and discoveries and problems and battles, the heroes come to the Well of Ascension in the title. And things start to go bad. And then they get worse, despite the hero's efforts to do things right. In short, everything's set up to face off against the bigger bad in the third book of the trilogy. This book, The Hero of the Ages, is where we really get into the powers behind existence in this world. How they get along or don't, and why things went so weird a thousand years ago in the first place, and what one of them has been continually doing to writings and records to make things even harder for, well, everybody. And at the same time, all of the problems of establishing some kind of reliable peace in the world of workaday people and nobles keeps having a variety of troubles. In other words, there are wars going on, some for the usual reasons, some for the heroes to get places so they can learn more about the bigger bad and how to get things all sorted before the book ends. There is a nice little twist in this one, though, about who the real hero of the ages is. There is a great sacrifice that totally works for me, and there is a very satisfying conclusion to the entire trilogy. It was, in fact, so satisfying 
I never even explored if Brandon Sanderson ever did anything more with this world. And it turns out he did, but I haven't read those, mostly because I only just in the past couple of days learned that they exist. So I will end up getting them put on my list to read at some point in the future. So now, that is the Mistborn Trilogy reviewed. Time for the grade, and here are my thoughts leading up to it. The setting was great. There may have been earlier works set in post-apocalyptic fantasy worlds, but I don't know of any. There is a D&D setting, but I don't know of any works of prose, of fiction, that uh, have used that setting. This was my first exposure to one like that. The magic system is outstandingly well thought out, consistent, and original. Magic use being dependent on an accident of genetics isn't a new idea, but really everything else about allomancy, ferrochemy, and the other one that comes up that I won't spoil for you, but involves those guys with the metal spikes to their eyes, those are things I had never seen before. The plot was, at its bones, basic. There's nothing wrong with that. It's heroes organizing a revolution against an oppressive government. We've seen it a lot of times, and but, you know, if, if you boil any plot down long enough, you're, you're going to get something basic. Scattered through the plot, were some good surprises, some solid characterization, not not spectacular, but not bad. And I've said before, there's nothing wrong with a character who has a good but flat story arc. Ask Marty McFly. The telling of the story is good. This was one of Brandon Sanderson's first published books, and you can tell he's not a master yet. There were sections I had to reread to get what was being said. And the dialogue kind of gets a little clunky at times. It's not terrible, but it's signs of a writer still trying to really nail down his voice. And yes, my hand is raised again. I'm aware. Thank you. So overall, the Mistborn trilogy, taken as a whole, gets an A- minus from me. Frankly, the magic system saved it from being a solid B. That is really one good magic system and well used. So there we go. The Mistborn first trilogy... A minus from me on Geeks Grading Geekdom. As always, feel free to let me know how wrong I am or or right you think I am, if that's the case. The text line to do that is 901-878-9420. Got an email address. If you have something particularly long to say, then you can do that at mail at drakehallmemphis.com. Also, as always, if there's any other topic in the wide world of geekdom you'd like for me to address and grade, please let me know that too. For now, thank you for listening. I am Wes Shahola, and I hope this was worth your valuable time. This is Drake Digital.